0: Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Paul starts off this book, this letter to the church in Philippi, by telling them, all those people in that church, that he is praying for them all the time. Can you imagine that? I mean, just think about that for a second. Having the Apostle Paul praying for you all the time. That would be great, right? This is part of the temptation of the Roman Catholic Church. Like, hey, there's all these great people who have gone before us. What if they could all still pray for us? Wouldn't that be awesome? God answers prayer. I have a proposal. My proposal is you pray. You pray constantly like the Apostle Paul did for the Philippians. You pray for one another. I'll pray for you. He is constantly praying for them. And one of the things that he says, and he reiterates this throughout the book, is how thankful he is in his prayers all the time for them. He tells them why he's thankful, as we saw last week. He's thankful because they have helped provide for his needs. He's thankful because they have not abandoned the gospel, but they are producing fruit. He's thankful because they are seeking the fruit of the gospel, both in their lives and he is seeing it in them. He has a lot to be thankful for in that church that started with just a couple of people, women gathered by the side of a river to pray, not even a synagogue for him to preach in, a humble beginning And what a joyful, joyful thing he has this church now that he can rely on when he's in prison and where they'll provide for him when no other churches are willing or able, when many others have abandoned him. So he's thankful, he's grateful, he's joyful in what they have done and how God has worked in them. And this morning we get to find out what he prays for them. So he he's thankful for them, but then he's he's not just praying thanking God for them, he's also praying for them. And his prayer for the Philippians is that they would increase in love. That's his prayer. It's simple. His prayer is that they would increase in love. But the love that he wants to see in them is a particular kind of love. Okay? It's a particular kind of love. He wants to see smart love in them. You've probably never heard of smart love, but I think that's the best way that we can describe What he goes on to say about this love that he desires to see in them, that he's praying, would increase in them. Smart love, informed love, discerning love, knowledgeable love. Otherwise, if their love is dumb, if our love is dumb love, it's not what Paul is looking for. And it won't produce the fruit that he desires to see in them. The fruit of righteousness. So let's read these few verses from Philippians chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection Of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So the beginning and end of these few verses we read of Paul's confidence, not in the Philippians, right, but his confidence ultimately is in God, that God will accomplish, God will complete, God will finish this work that he has Begun, verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then, verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, Paul's confidence... Is that Jesus Christ and His forgiveness, His righteousness, is effective in the lives of His people, the Philippians, this church, us? And you see, again, in verse 8, His great love for them. What does he say? He starts, it with, uh, he, he starts it with an oath. God is my witness. He's serious about what he's about to say, right? God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What does he want? He wants to see them, doesn't he? He loves them. He wants to be with them. Why? Because he has that great affection, that love for them. And it's not just any love. It's not just human love. It's, he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he's doing two things here. He's declaring to them his love and how great it is, but secondarily, he's reminding them of the fact that really the greatest affection is the affection, the love of Christ Jesus, isn't it? So by by saying how much he desires to see them and comparing it to the affection of Christ Jesus, he's raising up his love to the higher level, isn't it? He's saying, it's like, I, I swear to God, God is my witness. I love you. I want to see you because I have the love of Jesus Christ for you. That's how much I love you. And so we think, whoa, Paul really loves them, doesn't he? That's amazing, isn't it? For him to say that, for him to give that level of intensity and He's not blaspheming, right? This is in God's word. He's not lightly swearing. He is saying, I long to see you. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What would that mean? Does that mean that the only way that that affection can show itself is if he could see them? No, as a matter of fact, the, him writing this letter is flowing out of that affection that he has for them in Christ Jesus, doesn't it? It's a sweet thing. The closeness, the love, the affection that he has. And so what he, de- he then does is he then turns around and he, he begins to push them to have that same kind of affection, to, for them to increase in love the same way that he loves them. Now, how many of us would like to be prayed for by Paul? I think all of us raise our hands, right? But, you know, how many of us would like to be loved with the affection that Paul has? I'm not, in, I'm not quite as sure that we would all raise our hands, even if we were to finish reading this letter. And this letter is one of the sweetest letters that Paul writes, it's one of the uh, least scary letters that he writes. You know what I mean? This letter to this sweet church that he has such a great relationship with, for they have such affection for, that clearly have wonderful love and affection for him as well in a way that none of the other churches are able to. I don't know. It still gets pretty intense. (laughs) Stick around. We'll get to it. Not today. But you can take my word for it. When he's calling out people by name, women in the church remember the church started with a couple of women by the la- i mean by the river right and then he's calling them out by name and later on in the book he's returning to this theme of love and he's telling them now you love start loving each other it's like i don't know if i like being loved by paul this much everybody's reading this letter and there's my name in it and now it's going to the other churches everybody's going to know as a matter of fact Here we are 2,000 years later, and we still know their names, don't we? Is it because Paul doesn't love them that he does that? No, it's precisely because he has this level of affection for them that he loves them to that extremity, to that intensity, to that depth, to that uncomfortableness. That whole day and night, house to house, with tears thing that Paul does is just a little bit over the top sometimes. Like, I know you love me, but would you just maybe not love me quite as much, Paul? And he says, no, I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus, who will not let you go, who chases you down, when you're off straying, who leaves the 99 and runs after the 1. This is the affection that he has for the Philippian church. It's sweet. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's a little bit intimidating. And it's what he wants them to have. He wants their affection to be the affection of Christ Jesus He wants their love to abound still more and more. What love? Well, it's precisely the love that God has, isn't it? Remember that Jesus says the whole law can be summed up in two commands. And what are those two commands? Kids, anybody know? What is the greatest commandment? Remember when Jesus is asked that question? What does he say? Go ahead, Judah. And that's the second. What's the greatest? No, that's the second. You got the second. But there's two commands he gives right back to back. And he says the whole law and prophets can be summed up. Love. The Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul. What, did you say that? Yeah. And then your neighbor. Yeah, you said it. That's right. You said neighbor twice. You just just mixed up a couple of words in there. But the first command is to love the Lord your God. And the second is what he, he says. He says, it's like it. Why is it like it? Because it starts the same way. Love. You shall love. You shall love God, and you shall love your neighbor. And if you do those things, you're keeping the law. All you have to do is those two things. And sounds really simple, doesn't it? And yet, there's a little bit more to it than what we typically think of in America today when we say the word love. And Paul gets at that by qualifying this love immediately. Jesus does too. He says, how are you supposed to love God, right? You shall love the Lord your God a particular way, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Paul here desires that their love, verse 9, would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And what's his goal? Well, his goal ultimately, the next verse, or actually it's, it's two verses later that he gets to the ultimate goal, So that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ there in verse 11. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says the whole of the law is summed up in those two commands. Righteousness can be summed up as love. Righteousness can be summed up as love. And that's why it's not surprising that elsewhere Paul says, finally these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I always kind of found that irritating. I don't understand why these three are left... And I don't understand why love would be the most important. And then you realize, oh, it's because that is, that is the law. That is the essence. That is the central reality. God is love. Not loving. He is love. God is righteous. How? Because he is perfectly loving. Because he is love. They're interwoven with one another, aren't they? If we live our lives with love, if if love defines who we are, our actions and inside us, in our hearts, right, then what we are doing all day and all night is living a righteous life. Because if you're keeping the whole law, you are living perfectly. You are Being righteous. And so it's impossible to overstate the importance of love. It's impossible. You compare it to faith and hope, love wins. It's greater. It's the greatest. Those are the only three things that are left in the end. And which which one is the greatest? Love is the greatest. But if I send you out and tell you, just love, you know, we just need to grow in love. And if we just, if there was just more love in this world, everything would be great. Then it would be sort of like saying, can't we all just get along, right? Right? And the answer to that question, of course, is no, we can't all just get along, can we? Why not? Well, because we are not perfectly loving, right? And there's another reason. There's another reason, and that reason is because there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who God loves, and there are those... Whom he hates. And they can't get along. They can't get along. You understand? There's two kingdoms. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And they're at war with one another. This is why when Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail... We realize that there is a fight going on. Now, am I telling you to love by saying this? I am. This is precisely what is necessary for us to grow in if we are going to grow in love. We have to grow, abound more and more in a love that is knowledgeable, it cannot be a, a, a love that is un, unfilled, that is amorphous and driven around by the wind. You understand that there are things that compete for our love, right? And that some of those things are good and some of them are bad. And so the first thing that will happen to us, if we just go out and say, you know what? All we need is love. Sing along with the Beatles or with countless other songs. You know, We could go through the list of all the people who have written songs that are just like, man, if we could just get along. You know what? Let's just love one another. Love one another. And what? What's the first thing that will happen? The first thing that will happen is that you'll fall in love with something that you shouldn't love (laughs) or someone that you shouldn't love. You say, well, I'm supposed to love everybody, right? And I say, yeah, 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 but you know what I'm talking about, falling in love with somebody you shouldn't, right? And the second thing that will happen is Similar to the first, that is that you will begin to love something good, but that you will love it in the wrong way. You will love it more than you love God. Both of those things, to, to love the wrong thing, To love the wrong person, to love the right thing but the wrong way, to love it more than God, both of those things are idolatry. And so, one of the things that we have to remember if we're going to abound in love in this way that Paul is speaking of is that love comes up out of our heart. Love comes from our heart. And one of the things that the Bible is filled with is warnings against loving the wrong things, desiring those wrong things or those wrong people. I want to just read a few passages here. Second Timothy four ten, the Apostle Paul writes, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas loved this present world. Well, isn't that good, Paul? You just got done saying to the Philippians, right, that if they would just abound more and more in love, and, and Demas loves the world, so that's good, right? No. Obviously, it's not right. Our love must be focused, right? It can't be just spreading out all over the place. It has to be informed. It has to be filled with knowledge. Now 2 Peter 2.15, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved, does anybody know? What was Balaam after? The wages of unrighteousness. Is it good to love the wages of unrighteousness? Nope. It's bad. We've got to have our love defined with proper walls, don't we? That's where knowledge comes in. Again, Matthew 6, 5, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love, this is is something they love to do, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Or 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So love can lead straight to wandering away from the faith if our love is improper. Here's an example from the Old Testament in Jeremiah 22:22 <clears throat> The wind will sweep away all your shepherds and your lovers will go into captivity. Then you will surely be ashamed and humiliated because of all your wickedness. This is an example, of course, of loving the wrong person, right? Idolatry that Jeremiah is speaking of. If righteousness is our goal, if righteousness is what Paul is seeking for the Philippians then love on its own will not help. It will hurt without knowledge. And so we must have love that abounds in real knowledge. It grows in knowledge of God and of all things that are worth loving. How do you know what is worth loving. Well, it also has to be discerning love, doesn't it? Real knowledge and all discernment. Think of an example of the kind of Loving that we do that is not with knowledge. We'll get to discernment again in a second. But think of, think of what it means to love without knowledge. There's a lot of ways that uh, we just saw passages that talked about loving things that are absolutely wrong. Obviously, that's not loving with knowledge or discernment, right? But even when we think of loving somebody that is like in our family. For example, Fiona loves Annabelle, and so you know what she does? She picks her up and drags her around while Annabelle is screaming. Is this loving with knowledge? It's not, right? Because what is necessary, if, if there was real knowledge there, she would know that love the golden rule, right? Jesus is the one who gave us this command. That what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love others the way that we would want to be loved. Now, that's not what, actually what he says, okay? But that's the that's the that's a, a good application in this context. The golden rule in this case is recognizing that just because you you love somebody, and you like them, doesn't mean that what you're immediately inclined to do is necessarily the correct way to love them. As a matter of fact, that whole like squeezing tight, holding until the head pops off is not good knowledgeable love, is it? It's Questionable whether it is even love. And I don't just mean it's idolatry instead of love. I mean that it is selfish. It's lack of love ultimately, isn't it? This is why it's necessary for us to constantly remember that love flows up out of our hearts. And so our hearts, our desires have to be transformed within us. By this knowledge. And then it flows out into these actions that are appropriate actions that are truly loving because our heart has been informed, guided, hemmed in by this proper knowledge of what love is, what it looks like, how it ought to be exhibited. and then discerning discerning what is appropriate to love, what is truly good, what is truly excellent, verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Because it's easy for us to get excited about things that are totally not excellent, dude. Right? For instance, stupid movies. We can get really into stupid movies, can't we? They're not excellent. And what do we do? We give our excitement to them, our, our love of entertainment, and what? We're approving things that are not excellent. Finally, brethren, whatever things are. Can can you fill in the blank? Noble, good, true, pure. I've got the list all mixed up now that i stopped, but <laughs> I'm seeing people mouthing some of them. Excellent. This, is, this is, can be summed up just in that one word, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. That's what discernment leads to. What, even what is, what is worth studying and what is not worth studying. You know, there's people that are always learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth, right? The knowledge that you have to have is, has to be determined by a discerning that goes along with it. This is love that abounds in discernment. The right things to love. The right people to love. As well as the things and people to reject. And then we approve those excellent things. Not approving of bad behavior. But rather... The fruit being that righteousness that is described by that perfect love for God and for our neighbor. Perfect love is the love that is filled with knowledge. And you see this in God, don't you? What we want In our culture today, when we know that there is a loving God, right, God the Father, and and what we want as a culture is that he would just be this grandfather figure that hands out candy, right? The undiscerning, blind and deaf father, grandfather maybe, that didn't notice that Tommy was just hitting Sally, right? (laughs) Right? But that's not who God is, is he? He is all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-powerful, and he is love. And so his love is perfectly defined, isn't it? It has very clear walls. It is utterly discerning. It divides us down into our heart by the sword of the Spirit. Between joint and marrow, it discerns the intentions of our hearts as he loves us, as he cleanses us. Think of him washing you. You want to be washed by him, right? Do you want him to wash you with a general washing that he gives to everybody or do you want him to love you in a discerning way where he wipes away the particular nasty scars and black spots and sins that you have. A knowledgeable love. A love that goes deep. That's what we need and what we want and what we are to have. This is the love that Paul is saying he has for the Philippians. He knows them. He knows them well. He knows them He has affection for them the way that Christ Jesus does. And so his desire for them is the same as that of Christ Jesus, that they would be righteous. When we love the right things with real knowledge, our actions are excellent because those actions flow out of our heart. And discerning, wise, knowing love is love that makes us want good things. Let's pray.